The worship team was uh, at a conference uh, this last week. Uh, it's an experience conference, right? And uh, just were down there getting filled up and learning and, and growing themselves. Man, I could feel it today that they had been charged up and been at a place to worship God. And man, Ryder, I don't say this enough, but I just appreciate your humble heart, your gifted heart, uh, your passionate heart. This guy has been here from the beginning with me, the last 18 years, given his life to this place since he was a 16-year-old kid. Um, who, yeah, yeah. And so, man, I love you. Yeah. And I was a 30-year-old kid when I first came here. And now I'm a 48-year-old kid. <laughs> yes, I am. We're in a, our fifth week of our series called Squad, The God Squad. And uh, that's how we see ourselves. We're, just, we're not a congregation uh, where we have a bunch of members that come to a social club to kind of make butt prints in those seats and then leave and it doesn't affect our lives. We're a team, team impact. And there's a part of being a team that we relate to. We want to win. We don't want to just play. I don't know about you, but in the Christian life, I don't want to just play. I want to win. And, but there is a deviation today that I want to talk about because it's great to have a dream team, right? And we want to be a dream team. We want to be everything God dreamt about when Jesus was hanging on that cross, laying down his life for the church. He had a dream of what that ecclesia would look like, that assembly, that gathering, that team would look like. And we want to make every dream that he had in his heart worth dying for. Yes. So we want to become that. We want to embody that because we are the body of Christ on this planet, bearing the reputation of Christ. We want to be the dream team, but we're not here to win in this world as a church. This is where it's different. We're not here to beat the world. It's not us versus the world. We're not trying to be the winners and the world is the loser. If the world doesn't win, we don't win. Our main ambition as a church is to come to know the Lord, to experience the lifeblood that he places inside of us in order to animate us and send us back out into the world to tell them it's for you too. We're not coming here to just find safety from the world, to separate from the world. We're not separationists here. We're here to not be insulated from the world and insular as a church and separated from the world so that we don't have to deal with all of the besmirched behavior and all the debauchery out there and all the nonsense and all the you know, outrage and stuff. We are here to say, God, we're gonna stack hands. We're gonna get our marching orders from our coach Jesus and we're going back out in the world because we want the world to win. Who we don't want to win is Satan. Come on. Yeah. So we're against every scheme of the evil one. But we are not us versus the world. We are not just the dream team. We are the redeemed team. And any dream team becomes a redeemed team that's like, I'm going to the world to bring redemption to the world to let them know there is a home for you. There is hope for you. There is help for you. There is life for you and peace for you and joy for you. There's freedom for you available on this planet. You don't have to commit suicide. You don't have to check out. You don't have to go numb. You don't have to like bury yourself in an addiction to numb the pain. Jesus Christ can be everything you're looking for. Amen. 
in a world where you can't get no satisfaction. So we become the redeemed team if we're the dream team. It's been two of the hardest years of my life in ministry. Last year, losing my mom and losing my dad in quick succession has left a big ache inside of me and I try to like just busy myself with things and it doesn't go away. And so there's been a lot of heaviness in my life this year. I'm not standing up because I'm somehow immune to what it's like to live in a world of pain and loss. I feel you. But I'll tell you, one of the most amazing things in my life this year that God put on my heart about a year and a half ago is I need to find someone that I can share Christ with that doesn't come to this church and come here and want me to lead them to Christ. But I have my eyes on someone and I go and seek them out and chase them down and befriend them and let them know, I want you to experience the Jesus I've experienced. And this last year, I led a person to Jesus on my own as a pastor. Now I, I lead tens of people to Jesus that come to the church, want Jesus, and I lead them to Christ but I'm talking about doesn't come to church, doesn't want to come to church, wants nothing to do with God, and over the past year, crossed the line of faith. There is nothing like that feeling or working and discipling guys that are sort of maybe infantile in certain parts of their faith and pouring into them and discipling them and giving my life for them, laying down my life for them, praying for them. They're in the crosshairs of my life. I have literally four guys, or actually three guys on a hit list right now, which I call hearts in transition. That's my hit list. They don't know Christ yet. I'm starting to work into their life and befriend them and encourage them. They're pouring out their hearts. I want to see them cross the line of faith. They're on my radar. And you're so all-consuming being a pastor of a church. You want this, you want this, you want this, you want this. I could bury my life in Christians all day long and forget that the world is lost and needs Jesus. I met with four atheists just in the last like three months. Two agnostics out for coffee. Because I want to do the stuff Jesus did. I don't just want to lead a modern Americana church with a bunch of people that come and listen to me preach. Honestly, preaching is just, it's fun, but it's, it's not all I do. It's very little of what I do. And this is like, I don't know, after 25 years, I love it, but this is not what gets me up in the morning. What gets me up in the morning is getting out on the streets, getting out of the pews and into the bleachers with people this week that I met. And I want that for our church. That's the redeemed team. The dream team comes here and we kind of pat our backs and feel good about ourselves and then we go back out and we're dismissed at the end of the service. I'm never saying that ever again. You're dismissed. No, you're commissioned. Philemon 6 says this, be active in sharing your faith so that you might have a full understanding of what you have in Christ. If you're not active in sharing your faith, you you will never have anything but a partial understanding of what you have in Christ. And the church in our modern era is lukewarm in the area of evangelism. I'm here to turn up the heat of evangelism on you a little bit today, if that's okay. Is that okay? To think about the lost, to think about the world. 
to think about the people that are literally going to hell if they don't hear about Jesus, the savior of the world, the lamb of God that took away the sins of the world to cover their sins so that they could be righteous in the sight of God and spend an eternity with God. Amen. We've got to care about that or we're not a church. I don't know what we are, but we're not a church. And I want a full understanding of what I have in Christ, not a partial understanding. I don't want complacency. I want to feel motivated. God, use me for your glory. Paul said to Timothy before he went to prison in Rome and was beheaded, the last chapter of the last words he said to Timothy before he handed off the baton, he said this, keep your head in all situations, bro. Endure hardness. Do the work of an evangelist and discharge the duties of your ministry. Now, a lot of us, we could get involved in the church in ministry, that last one carrying out our ministry, and we can endure hardness, and we could try to keep our head in all situations. But the one that's most forgotten in the church these days is doing the work of an evangelist. That means don't get so used to and accustomed to being around a bunch of Christians that you forget there's other people who do not know what you know, and they need to come into a relationship with Jesus. Evangelism is simply sharing the good news of Jesus with others. Telling others about the story of how you found Christ or rather how Christ found you and the ways that encounter has changed your life. That's called witnessing. That's called sharing your testimony. I love the way one guy said it. Sometimes evangelism is simply telling someone you're a Christian and then not being a complete jerk. <laughs> That's a start. How many of you know Christians that are absolute jerks? And you'd wish they'd just shut their mouth and take the Jesus fish off their bumper because you're like, you are a horrible testimony. I would never buy what you're selling. You don't even use the product that you're out there, you know, trying to sell. You, this is not real to you. Shut your yapper. So part of evangelism is just like, I'm a Christian and I'm really trying not to be a jerk. We've sit around impact for years that have hurt people, hurt people, the awesome thing is that found people find people. Rescued people rescue people. Saved people save people. If you're found and you don't care about the lost, you might not be found. If you're saved and you don't care about the lost, you might not be saved. I don't know how you can experience the salvation power of God in your life and that not be something you're writing home about and is remarkable enough to share with someone else. In fact, there's, there's one name in the Bible we share with Jesus as a descriptor where Jesus said in John chapter eight, I am the light of the world. And then in Matthew chapter five, he says, you are the light of the world. Isn't this interesting? Like I'm the light of the world, but I'm also working with you because you're the light of the world too. People are looking to you. You're a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden so that you let your light shine before all men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Jesus said this to the people, I'm the light of the world, but you are too. Let's work together to shine in the darkness. We are an essential part of God's plan to bringing and to being a light in the darkness. So why do we evangelize as Christians? Well, quite simply, Jesus did. And then that was the mandate he left to us in what's affectionately known as the Great Commission. 
I was looking at just a set of verses in, in the Bible in Luke 4, he comes out and he says, I'm here anointed by God to preach good news to the poor. And he gives his mission statement in Luke chapter four. But in Luke 19, he gives the mission statement, but it's more the elevator version. Really, really quick. If you don't have time to read Isaiah 61, which is where Luke 4 comes from, Luke 19, 10, Jesus says this, the son of man came to seek and to save those who were lost. Came to seek and save those who were lost, which means Jesus didn't believe that the whole world was okay or he wouldn't have come or that all roads lead to heaven or nirvana or Abraham's bosom or paradise, whatever you want it, or that all hearts, no matter what, because God's so good and a loving God would never send anybody to hell. It really doesn't matter what decision you make down here. You're all going to heaven, which is kind of the new modern theory, which is called moralistic therapeutic deism in theology. Everybody feels good. You're good. We want you to feel good. God just flung this thing into being and stands at a distance. You're on your own, but don't worry in the end. Everything's going to be just fine. That's not true. Or Jesus would not have come to seek and to save those who are lost. And it, it's so important. And you're like, well, I didn't know I'm supposed to be seeking. Jesus saw it. And, and there are some churches out there that are seeker churches where people come in and investigate the claims of Jesus Christ. That's wonderful. That's not the seekers that I'm talking about. Most people that need Christ that are lost are not gonna come through these doors unless there's a seeker going after them. Yeah. In fact, in Romans chapter three, it says no one seeks after God. Not on their own. They need someone to come after them. We're a seeker church, not waiting for people to come seek us. We go seek them because that's what Jesus did. And we want to seek. Like, well, how is a church going to be a seeking church? Well, you've got to be there with a pastor who tells you you're supposed to seek and to save the lost. I'm going to stand before God someday and, and he's going to be like, bro, you are a pastor. You're going to give an account to me. Why didn't you tell people that I did this and then that I handed it off to them for them to do it? In fact, it goes from Luke chapter 19, 10 and goes right to a logical sequential conclusion where he said in John chapter 20, 21, as the father sent me on this mission, so now I am sending you. And you're like, oh crap, I just love to follow Jesus as he did this. But we're no different. Jason, I want you to do it as the pastor. I want the church to somehow do it on staff. That's not my job. That's why I put money in the offering plate or, you know, give online so that the church continues to be an evangelistic, you know, powerhouse in the world. No, 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 no. The Lord says to every one of us here, as the Father sent me, I'm commissioning you. I'm ordaining you. I'm sending you. I was looking at some statistics. George Barna has so many statistics. He said 96% of Christians never, ever lead anyone else to Christ. 96% of Christians. And I'm one of those, right? He said 2% of Christians, only 2% are actively sharing their faith throughout the week. Sharing that they know Jesus, that they follow Jesus, sharing their faith with someone else in a myriad of ways. Only 2%, like the first few rows in the church, a couple rows, 
But you know why? Let me give you a couple other statistics that kind of convict me. 63% of pastors, deacons, leaders, elders of the church don't share their faith outside of the boardroom that they meet in once a month. If it doesn't go from the boardroom to the wrestling room, to the weight room, to the classroom, what do we got? Leaders aren't doing this. In fact, it's said of pastors, 89% of pastors make no time in their schedule to be with anyone outside the church to evangelize. There's literally no margin most pastors create in their schedule to go meet people and interact with people and hobnob with people and rub shoulders with people that already don't know Christ. And I can tell you, I've been a part of that. Certain years, my whole life is just given to the church and church people and Christians. God's like, yeah, you've forgotten the Great Commission. Which leads to the next verse, the Great Commission. I'm sending you just like my father sent me. Oh, to do what? Well, I'll tell you what. Therefore, go and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. I think that's the King James Version. But what do you see up here? Go and make. How, what is that? Seek and save. It's the same thing. I'm asking you, you have to go. You cannot come to church. You have to go into the world. And, and disciples don't just show up. They're made. It's kind of like leaders. You're not born a leader. You, you do things to, to make leadership happen. Disciples are made. Are we making disciples? Are we going? And then Jesus, the last words before he left, he died, he resurrected from the dead. He kind of gives a great commission. He's like, here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And man, when he comes on you, you're gonna do things you couldn't do before, Peter. John, you, you, Thomas, all these people, you followed me, I did it, you tried it, you failed, but when the Holy Spirit comes on you and fills you, then you're gonna be my witnesses. You're gonna start witnessing of what's happened in your life. And you're gonna start in your hometown of Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria and then to the ends of the earth, all the way in Lowell, they're gonna hear about me someday. Across the ocean. And they're like, yeah, right. There's like 120 of them in an upper room waiting for this Holy Spirit that he was talking about. When the Holy Spirit came, poured out his spirit on his sons and daughters, young men and old, and they just were animated for Christ. And people started coming to know Jesus because they took these commands and mandates seriously. D.T. Wright brings the cookie down to the cookies down to the bottom shelf. He said, evangelism is just one beggar telling another where to find bread. I love that. I was just a beggar, found some bread. Hey, there's some bread over here. We're, we're all just beggars. A few weeks ago, I, I felt led by God to just read the red letters in the Bible, the words of Jesus, my devotion. And something hit me that relates to what I want to share about in evangelism today. And, and it's in the book of Matthew. And then I want to take you on a safari of scriptures to hit, that kind of hit each other in my mind like dominoes um, once the seed thought was like planted in my heart earlier this week. In Matthew 9, verse 27, it says, Jesus went on from there and two blind men followed him calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. 
When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and asked him, do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. And Jesus warned them sternly, sternly, see that no one knows about this because his time had not yet come. But they went out and spread the news about him all over the region. And maybe it was reverse psychology, like don't tell anybody about this. And they're like, we gotta tell everyone. It seems to me that when people met Jesus in the Bible, they couldn't help but go out and share with others what Jesus did in their life and who he was. And Jesus couldn't even stop them. In fact, these dudes disobeyed Jesus in order to tell other people about Jesus. That's weird. In Acts 4, you see the same thing as Jesus left and the disciples were filled with the Spirit In verse 13, it says, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, just like you and me, they weren't like going to seminary. They hadn't gone through all these hoops they had jumped through before they were ordained to turn into a reverend. No, they just just were filled with boldness. And these men, they marveled, took note. These men have been with Jesus, like he had an effect on their life. And seeing the man who'd been healed by them standing there with them, they had nothing to say in response. So they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What should we do with these men? They asked. It's clear to everyone living in Jerusalem that a remarkable, circle that word, highlight that word, miracle has occurred through them and we cannot deny it. But to keep this message from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them not to speak anymore in this name, this name of Jesus. And then they called them back in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus because that's where the power is. Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to listen to you rather than God. For we cannot help but speak about what we have seen and heard. We're eyewitnesses. I don't even need to tell you John's story or Peter's story or their story. I got my story. You may not know the whole Bible, but you know your story. You know who you were. You know what Jesus did and you know how he's changing your life. That's your testimony right there. That's what casts the devil out of heaven in Revelation chapter 12. By the word of our testimony and by the blood of the lamb, Satan was cast down from heaven. It's unreal. The power of your testimony. And that's what they're kind of sharing. We got to tell you what we've seen and heard. We're just eyewitnesses of something. It goes on in chapter five. It says, they called the apostles in and had them flogged. I mean, we're not going through this. Like after you share and you say, I'm not gonna stop, they bring you back in. They whip you a little bit to see if that might not change your behavior and modify your action plan in Christianity. (laughs) And they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. When you've experienced the grace of God, you do not find it like off-putting to suffer disgrace for that name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house to house, so in church and out of church, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the savior of the world, the Messiah, the chosen one, the one who was to come to save us. Just couldn't stop him. 
And from these verses we've looked at, it would seem that one of the signs of true salvation that accompanied early church Christ followers was the unstoppable impulse they felt to tell others about the Jesus they'd experienced. They couldn't help but speak about Christ. To use the word that they used in the text we just read, it was truly remarkable. Which you look at the word in the middle, it's, there's marked. A marked difference happens and then people remark on that and then it becomes remarkable. That's what a testimony is. There's a marked thing that's been happening in my life and a marked difference made someone else remark or made me remark and then it becomes remarkable. I want to be a remarkable church where it's word of mouth. We don't even have to go out and put up billboards and do marketing and branding and promotion. You're the people. You're the billboard. You're the only Bible that people are even going to read this week, many of them. You are. I was looking down like, what effect does my faith have on others? Is it remarkable? What effect does my faith, how does, what effect has it had on me? And there are five things that came to my mind. When you first come to Christ, the first one, it's debatable. Your family, your friends, like it's debatable. Did something happen? The second is it's like, it's acceptable. Like, okay, that's fine for you. I've got my way. You've got your way. It's acceptable. We can still do things. Just don't get up in my grill. Don't tell me about who your, you know, politics and religion. Let's keep that out of it. It's acceptable. If that's good for you, good for you. Then it moves to something else. It's noticeable. Like, man, there's a noticeable difference in my life and that person's life. Christ is doing something. And then it becomes admirable. Like, I admire that. And then it becomes remarkable. There are moments I live in acceptance too much or noticeable too much. And it doesn't go to the place where it's admirable or remarkable. But if it's a remarkable evangelism, it just, it spreads. Yeah. I think it's in um, 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 15, set apart Christ as Lord and always be ready to give an answer of the faith that's within you or the hope that's within you, yeah. but do so with gentleness and respect. What's interesting in that passage is it, it, your life starts to beg the question. Always be ready to give an answer of the hope that people see inside of you. Do they see that hope? Is it noticeable? Is it admirable? So they're asking your life, hey, what's going on in your life? And then be ready to answer them with respect and with gentleness. This is sharing your faith. One passage I love in evangelism is Acts 26, where Paul's getting ready to die for his faith. And he's before the powers that be, King Agrippa and Festus. Starting in verse 19, he shares with them, and you can just see something, a real personal interaction of evangelism like no other place in the scripture with Paul. He says, so then, King Agrippa, Paul is saying, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven for to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached, and the word preach is keruso, which means to declare. Evangelism comes from an, ev an evangel. An evangel was one that would go before there was social media and the news outlets and all this stuff. They would run around town and share the new news. Hey, the British are coming. The British are coming. That's an evangel. A caruso is someone proclaiming the message or the good news to someone. I preached the good news that they should repent, which means I'm wrong. 
I'm not good. I'm a sinner. Do you need to take that? <laughs> Repent. Turn to God. Demonstrate your repentance by your deeds. Like this is hardcore stuff, man. When you say someone needs to repent, you're saying you're wrong and you need to change your ways. And then you need to turn to God, which means you got to do a 180, not a 360. You don't come to Jesus and go, ha ha and go the same way. No, when you come to Jesus, repentance, I'm going that way now. And then demonstrate, it's proclamation, but it's demonstration. It's show and tell, right? Your repentance by your deeds. If you really came to Christ, there will be a demonstration of repentance that is proven by your actions, this is why an unbelieving world simply finds Christianity unbelievable because this is not what happens when people get saved anymore. They don't convert. And this is what he shares. And don't you see Acts 1.8 in there? He's like, hey, this is the vision. What's the vision from heaven that he wasn't disobedient? Well, the vision from heaven was Acts 1.8. The Holy Spirit's gonna come on you. You're gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Do you remember where Paul got saved? On the road to Damascus. So he's like, you know what I did? Jesus said, start where you are and start in concentric circles working out. I started in Damascus. I went to Jerusalem. I went to Judea. Now I'm with the Gentiles. That's been my Acts 1-8 story. I'm not disobedient to the vision God has from heaven. You want to know heaven's vision? It's that you would live out Acts 1-8 and be witnesses of what he's done in your life to your sphere of influence and outside. That's the vision of heaven goes on, it says, that is why some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. It doesn't always work out well, right? But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify, witness to the small and the great alike. I'm no respecter of persons. I'll share my story with anybody. You don't intimidate me. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses would have said in the Old Testament. The Messiah would suffer and at first rise from the dead and would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. That's what he did. That's what I'm trying to do. At this point, Festus, that was the governor of Judea, interrupted Paul's defense and said, you're out of your mind, Paul. If you're sharing your faith and you don't hear somebody say something like that to you, you're probably not sharing with boldness. You are out of your mind. Your great learning has driven you insane in the membrane, right? And he says, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. See how he has respect? What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king, King Agrippa, he's familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it wasn't done in a corner. Man, don't you hate in the corner Christianity? I just don't want anybody to be offended and I really don't want to share anything that makes you uncomfortable and this could be a little bit awkward and so I'm just going to kind of keep it in the closet and I'm going to keep it at home and I'm going to keep it personal and it's not going to be demonstrative. He's like, no, no, no. He's well aware. He knows what's going on. I didn't do any of this hiding in a quarter, slinking away like a little sheepish, puny man. No, no, no. He knows exactly who I am because it wasn't done in a corner. King Agrippa, he says, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. Amen. 
Don't you wish you had that boldness and confidence in the Lord and the respect and the gentleness, but the boldness and the confidence to say, I don't care, great and small alike, long time or short makes no difference to me. I pray that you and everyone else would be persuaded to know the God that I know become just like I am except for these chains right now. I wrote in my journal 10 years ago in January on this verse, and I wrote this, this conversation between Paul and the powers of Judea is telling. It pokes some holes in the argument that you're supposed to witness just without words or let your actions do the talking. The mantras of what is called lifestyle evangelism. Sort of like the quote that says, preach the gospel everywhere you go. If necessary, you use words. I will be the first to admit that this approach of relational evangelism is so refreshing in comparison to the bait and switch surveys and the agenda-driven conversations that lead to a punchline of sorts. There is nothing like the feeling you get when you feel like you got played, thinking the person was interested in you or listening to you only to find out they had an angle all along. It was really about them and their desired destination. I don't want to be like that. But then we must be careful not to let the pendulum swing far too over to wordless evangelism approach because there's a time to come out of the corner with our Christianity. We don't want our love for God to escape people's notice because we were covert operatives or what I call covert converts. This section of scripture makes no bones about witnessing with boldness and boldness is different than belligerence. King Agrippa knew exactly what was going on. He felt the pinch in that moment. He acknowledged the pressure. Are you trying to persuade me to be a Christian? Paul could have answered in real postmodern terms like, no man, I'm just sharing my own story, dude. I'm not trying to impose my belief system on you. We all have our own narrative and our own truth and it's more about the journey than the destination, blah, 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 blah. But he didn't. He straight up said, yeah, I am. And not just you, but everyone else listening in on this conversation. And I don't care if it's a short time or a long time. I want people, everyone to become what I am. Whoa, that's boldness. He doesn't care how long it takes, what it takes, who's standing around listening in. He loves who God made him to be. And he wants other people to have that same life for themselves. When something is so real to you that you wish your life could be experienced by others, this is the contagion of sharing your faith. If you're simply sharing a set of ideas or ideals, but you very obviously don't love your life, nor do others around you love being around your life, whatever you have to share becomes irrelevant. The power of someone sharing their faith is when their beliefs match their emotions, that match their words, that match their actions. This is evangelism. You see the word King Agrippa used, persuade? This is what Paul was trying to do. And persuasion is important. It's different than using power plays and pressure points to get something, someone to do something. The art of persuasion is a crucial component of sharing our faith. It's nuanced and it's layered and it's winsome. It's not manipulative. I need to say, see this again today. I needed to see this again because there's a ditch on both sides of the road, covert or overt. We need a fresh expression of bold faith that doesn't look like the cheap tricks of fanatics or dramatics. God, give us the passion of Paul to share our love for you with boldness. I wrote that at age 38. This led to another domino effect of verses that flooded my mind when I woke up this last Tuesday morning. I immediately grabbed my Bible and began ferreting through a couple texts that were swarming my consciousness like pesky, unrelenting horseflies. Jude. 
verse 20 through 23. But you, brothers and sisters, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith, that's what we're doing here today, by the by, and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God as you await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. Most Christians stop right there. And if you notice, it's about yourselves, yourselves. It's a bunch of Christians getting together for themselves, building themselves up in their most holy faith and keeping themselves in the love of God until the mercy of Christ appears and we all go to the sweet bye-bye in heaven someday. You know, we're waiting for the rapture. Many of you are like, oh, I think Jesus should come back right now. We can't wait for you to come back. No, they don't just build themselves up and stay in the love of God themselves. They go to the next verse and while you're doing that, make sure you do this. Have mercy on others who doubt and save others by snatching them from the fire and to still others show mercy tempered with fear, hating even the clothing stained by sinful natures. It's got to be about ourselves, but it has to stay about others. And if we're being built up in our most holy faith and we're keeping in the love of God, that will burn inside of us and it will be like, God, with passion, I must go out and snatch other peoples from the fire and save them because I'm here to seek and save those who are lost just like you did, God. Give me your fire. In fact, Jeremiah said it, and I think it's chapter 20, verses eight to nine. He says, but your word is in my, in my heart, in my fire, in my bones. I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. Amen. Give us that fire, Lord. Help us to build ourselves up and keep ourselves in the love of God, awaiting his return, longing for his return. But while we wait, we go out to others and we show mercy to those who doubt, snatch others from, from the fire, and we save them. It's life and death. It's heaven and hell. If you haven't heard about that lately, because we don't like to talk, everybody's going to heaven when they die. In this era, they're not. Because you've got to be holy to go to heaven. There's only one way to be holy, and that's for Jesus to die for your sins on the cross and to cover you up with his holiness and to take on your sin and die for your sin. That's the only way you're going to heaven. All roads don't lead to heaven. Well, I like my truth and my way and my life. Well, you can like your way, your truth and your life, but Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And then in Romans chapter 1, 16, says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. And then Jesus says this, if you're ashamed before men of me, I'll be ashamed of you before my fathers in heaven. That is scary. I just left my notes, so I don't know where I am at anymore, but I, I was uh, having a dream this last week. I've been dreaming about my mom and dad a lot. I've been actually going to a counselor for grief counseling, and that's been really, really powerful. If some of you have been hurt by people or you've gone through things or lost. I just, I want to let you know, get help. There's no stigma to it. If you need medication, get medication for a time period. It's not like, well, the Lord believes you don't trust him. If he's not enough for you, then no, no, that's just bogus. That's like you got zits all over your face. Go to the doctor. You don't have to have zits all over your face. You know, they've, they've done studies. There's science, there's medicine. If your teeth are jacked up, get braces. That's not not trusting the Lord, you know, for the rest of your life. God's like, we call them orthodontists. Go get braces. If you're hurt, go to the doctor. If your soul is hurt, go to a counselor. 
So I've been at the counselor and just working through that. But Tuesday, in my dream, I was FaceTiming my mom and dad and they were in heaven. Just like I used to do when they were over in Detroit. Hey, mom and dad, I get down. How are you doing? And my mom and dad are, my dad's trying to cram in so that he's there. My mom's doing all the talking, which was her custom. And he's just kind of there cracking some jokes. And it was really loud behind him. Like it was like a festival or they were at a party. He's like, ah, and he's like, yeah, how are the kids? How's Tay doing in college? First year, I've been, we've been thinking about the kids. And I'm sitting there talking to him like it's normal to FaceTime like your, your dead relatives in heaven. And I was like, oh, they're doing well. You know, the boys are doing well. Caleb's playing football. Josh is at Bethel, a new school. It's been going really good. And I was like, what about you guys? How are you doing? And mom's like, man, it's amazing. And she says, Jason, this is what she said to me. Jason, please tell people that it's real. Please tell people that it's real. And I was like, well, what's real? And she's all of it. Everything in the Bible, it's actually real. And dad's like, yeah, (laughs) what she said, you know? Now, I'm not telling you God spoke to me from heaven. That was a word from the Lord. But I'm telling you, I woke up and I'm like, oh my gosh, I got to tell people it's really real. We're in a stupor. We're asleep at the wheel in life. And we're just like, oh, I'm down here to take up space and to suck air. No, you're not. You're here to live your life for Jesus because someday you're going to be with him. No more tears. No more counseling. No more coming to hear this guy preach anymore. We don't need small groups. We don't need community groups. We've got Jesus and we won't have any sin or sickness or sadness or sorrow or suffering anymore. But until that day, until that day we got to get on mission the king has said i got some i got some edicts from on high i need you to achieve these things you want to armor up it's time a lot is hanging in the balance james chapter 5 puts it this way all the way at the end his half brother jesus half brother who came to christ after jesus resurrected he didn't even believe his own brother one of the greatest evidences that Jesus actually was who he said he was is he got his own brother to believe he was the Messiah. What would it take for you to get your brother to believe you are the son of God? (laughs) Raising from the dead. (laughs) My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, consider this, whoever turns a sinner from the air of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Somebody's wandering. Go, go, go looking for him. Save him. You save him from death and you cover over a multitude of sins that come when a person's just living apart from God, from their own instincts and their own flesh. So let me ask you, who is God wanting you to share Christ with? Who's on your hit list, right? You don't have to know everything about the Bible to evangelize. All you got to do is share the story of the difference Jesus is making in your life. Supposing he's making a difference in your life and he's not, if he's not, you need to get saved. If Jesus, since you've gotten saved, hasn't made one whip stitch of a difference in your life, you may not know Christ. And I'm not saying like the first time God shot a blank, he's like, sorry about that. But I I think sometimes we get saved and it's more emotion than it is heart. Or it's more head than it is heart. 
And some of us like, God, I didn't know what I know now. And if I knew then what I know now, I, I, I wouldn't have approached it the same way. The only reason why I got saved is so you give me a bunch of stuff or get me out of a pickle. I didn't do it to serve you, to follow you, to obey you. I, I just did it so that you would give me stuff. And God's like, God, ah, that's not salvation. I'm not a slot machine. I'm not a celestial bellhop. I'm not a genie in the bottle. You just got to rub her the right way. Christina Aguilera, right? I think. No, no, just a, uh, uh, no, 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 no. This is not the Jesus we follow. I'm sorry to bust your bubble. That's Hollywood. That's not Jesus. Tell them about how he's affecting you and changing you. Invite them to church. Check out church. Sit with you. Ask them questions about their beliefs. Share your own doubts and questions. You don't know everything. I don't know everything. Don't be afraid to say, I don't know. I'll give, get back to you on that one. For God's sake and for Pete's sake, right? Don't keep it to yourself. Love Pete for God's sake and love God for Pete's sake, right? Don't wait for the perfect time to share the gospel. It'll never come. Amen. Don't be ashamed of your love for God. It's never a perfect time. You'll never know enough. You'll never be ready. I'm not ready. I still get up here every week and I'm like, as flawed as I am and with all my limitations, God, I just give you what I am and who I am and what I know. And that's my offering. Matthew 10 says it this way. Jesus said, don't worry about how to respond because the disciples were freaked out to do this too about what you're gonna say. In that hour, I'll give you what you're gonna say right in that moment, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. You will put yourself in front of the person and be like, I'm scared out of my mind. This is where Christianity is fun. You, you probably, oh, Christianity is so boring. The only reason why it's boring is you never actually join the adventure. Try to go out with somebody and be like, I have no idea what I'm doing, what I'm gonna say. And God's like, you get in front of them and I will give you the words in that moment and you'll walk away and know, God, your Holy Spirit gave me those words because I've never had that thought. I don't even know that word. I have no idea where, how that verse came to my mind. That's what Jesus will do, but you've got to go in order to make disciples. There will be no saving power of God without a seeking power in the church. Evangelism is just one beggar telling another where to find bread. So God, we want you to send us out. All these people I'm looking at, if everyone would reach one, if each one would reach one. Yes. And you and I may not be able to change the whole world, but we can change somebody's world this week. So God, help us to change somebody's world this week. These people are the priesthood of believers. If they know you, help them to realize who they are. God, help me to realize who I am. Help me not be ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. Help us, Lord, send us out. Well, you guys are commissioned in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go and do this and check out how cool it is. Have a good day.